Oh, not so. Let's go right into practice. Please find a comfortable position. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, and for a little while calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing.
and with your eyes at least partially open, gently cast your gaze downwards, release your awareness into space evenly without focusing on any object, without meditating on anything. Just be present, free of distraction, free of grasping. whatever thoughts or images come to mind, without particularly focusing on them, without sustaining them, without trying to cut them off. Just let them fade out, vanish, of their own accord, as your awareness remains still, resting in its own place.
Then begin the oscillation. Simply of arousing the attention, of taking greater interest, focusing more clearly. In this present moment, and then releasing, all the while sustaining the flow of knowing. As you arouse and release your attention, focus in clearly when you do arouse, when you focus, 
in upon yourself, the one who is meditating, the one who is controlling the mind, focusing and releasing, focusing and releasing. Observe inwardly and see what you see. As you seek out the agent, do you see more or less than when you do not? Observe carefully and release your awareness. Observe and release. Let's continue practicing in silence.
Hello, Lasso. Uh, before we return to the next aphorism in the text, just a brief reminder. Uh, when I was here, before any of this was here, Klaus showed me this kind of scrubby uh, little field here and told me what it would be like. I had a hard time imagining it. Uh, but when Klaus and the people working with him, the architect and so forth, were designing our, um, our living facilities here, they had a beautiful design of really great uh, noise insulation between each of the rooms. It was like there was foam in there and two, two slabs of concrete. It would have been really great. Uh, it wasn't implemented. It was too bad. And by the time Klaus learned that the plans had not been done, that they'd gone the cheap way, then it was too late. They would have to rip down the whole building and do it all over again. So as a result of this, uh, a little bit unfortunately, but you know, we have to live with it, there is just very little noise insulation between the rooms. So it's very important that we not only have this as kind of a, a place of silence, and of course we're eating in silence, but also in the rooms, uh, if you even speak in an ordinary voice, just like I'm speaking right now in your room, your two neighbors can hear you, right? And this really is a silent retreat. So some of us, like, like myself, uh, I have daily commitments that I've taken on oh, 40 years ago. Uh, but so if you need to chant, chant really under your breath to really maintain a real, real silence in the room. Otherwise, it can really disturb the, uh, your neighbors. And having said that, uh, I have to be the one violator of what I've just said on occasion, as rarely as possible. But because I do have outside responsibilities, uh, trying to create a center in Bangalore, et cetera, et cetera, on occasion, I need to Skype, and I just don't have any choice. So I put on headphones, but people still have to. So my two neighbors, unfortunately, I'm sorry, but there it is, I have to. Um, but you don't have to. You don't have to be Skyping. So for all of the rest of you, unlike me, um, please really maintain real quiet in your room out of respect for your two neighbors who are very likely meditating and would like to meditate in their rooms. So thank you for that. And my apologies for those who I, I do disrupt. I do it as rarely as possible, but occasionally I really have to speak. So now we return to the text, and we're still here in the cultivation of ultimate bodhicitta, and the next aphorism is the essential nature of the path. Of the path is in brackets. It doesn't actually say it, but that is clearly implied. The essential nature of the path is resting in the nature of the substrate. So here is one of many cases uh, where a single term has two very different but related meanings. So I mentioned early on that this one term, rikpa, in Tibetan, in Buddhist psychology, this ordinary, you know, Buddhist psychology 101, um, rikpa simply means awareness, cognition, knowing. Nothing pristine about it, primordial, transcending, just, it's just knowing. I look over at Carmen and I know the color of her hair. How do I know that? With rikpa, with my awareness. So it's synonymous with another word, jnana, in Sanskrit, which just means consciousness. So consciousness, awareness, used interchangeably. And there's visual, there's auditory, there's mental, and so forth. So it's quite marvelous, but it's simply the ordinary consciousness we already experience. But then we know, of course, that exactly the same term, rikpa in Tibetan, then means pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, and in another context. So one word doing double duty. Now, a couple of days ago, I mentioned that the domain of experience of mental consciousness, that is the, yeah, the domain that we can apprehend, perceive, know, with mental consciousness, is called the Dharma Datu. Among the 18 Datus, or domains, it's the domain of Dharma, which is phenomena, right? So there's visual domain, auditory, and so forth. And each of those five sensory modes of consciousness are locked into 
their own domains. But mental consciousness actually can and does uh, illuminate and know all the domains. So that domain is called Dharmadhatu. Okay. But it's just the domain of mental experience. Nothing ultimate about it. But the same term, of course, when we slip over into the Mahayana tradition, into Vajrayana, into Dzogchen, Dhamadhatu, oh, that's the absolute space of phenomena, right? That out of which relative space, time, matter, energy, uh, that out of which all of mere appearances ultimately arise, it's the ground of the whole of samsara and nirvana, right? So, one term, two very different meanings, relative and ultimate. And now we're finding the same thing here, and that is when he says the essential nature of the path is resting in the nature of the substrate. It's the same term, alaya, as in alaya vijnana, or in Tibetan, kunshi namshe, kunshi. The, the term in Tibetan, kun, means all or everything, and ji means basis. So it's the total basis, the ground of all, the universal basis. So on a relative level, the substrate is simply the basis of your own individual samsara, right? But then we can say, does it have an ultimate meaning, exactly the same term? Yeah. And that's what he's referring to here. Obviously, he's not saying the essential nature of the path is just hanging out in shamatha. That'd be silly. So he's obviously, by context, then we see, ah, you must be referring to something ultimate here. So, but before going to the kind of the Mahayana and even the, the Dzogchen interpretation of this line, which now really is the essential nature of the of the path, pointing out exactly what is meant now when you're resting in meditative equipoise, full-fledged, now you're doing, now you're cultivating, cultivating or manifesting ultimate bodhicitta. Before going to the Mahayana, I'd just like to read a passage from the Pali Canon, which again makes, is kind of throwing ropes across the chasm. Sometimes Theravada Buddhism, Pali seems way over there, and Mahayana being quite, quite different, as if it's you know, an entirely different tradition. And that's not the case. Uh, and I'd like to show as many connections, smooth, smooth transitions, smooth evolution, so to speak, from the teachings in the Pali Canon on into the Mahayana and even the Dzogchen. So here's a statement from the Buddha. He said, for, for one who clings, motion exists. And see how this resonates with the, with the session we just did. For one who clings, clings, grasps. Where there's grasping for such a person, motion exists. I think you already know what that means, don't you? Don't you have a taste of it already? That when you get caught up in grasping, then your awareness is on the move. It's going here, it's going there, and so forth. Carried away by this thought. Whereas when you release all grasping, awareness can just rest in stillness. In its own place. So once again, for one who clings, motion exists. For, but for one who does not cling... I have to fix this hypo there. One who does not cling, there is no motion. Where there's no motion, there is stillness. Where there is stillness, there is no craving. So now we see this circularity of the wheel of Dharma, so to speak. Where there's stillness, there's no craving. Where there's no craving, there is neither coming nor going. Where there's no coming or going, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where there's neither arising nor passing away, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This truly is the end of suffering. very deep. And it resonates on so many different levels. So now we go to the Vajra essence to try to unpack, to get as clear a conceptual understanding as we can. What does this mean to rest in the nature of the substrate? So the Vajra essence. Previously, your intellect demarcated outer from inner. 
and grasped to them as being distinct. Let's pause there. Just in terms of kind of relative manifestation of the consciousness of ordinary mind, of the psyche. This comes up elsewhere in the substrate, in the Vajra essence. And that is when we, for example, when we slip into deep sleep, non-lucid deep sleep, and we don't even know we're asleep, so there's no explicit knowing of anything, right? In that case, we're just resting in the substrate. Right? And the substrate on this relative level, so we want to make clear distinction, the substrate on the relative level that I've talked, talked about now for two weeks, off and on, that's of the very nature of unknowing. The substrate is of the very nature of unknowing, avidya. And it's kind of clear. That's not metaphysical belief. When you're in deep, dreamless sleep and you're not lucid, you're just resting in a state of unknowing. You don't know how much time has passed. You don't know that you're asleep. You don't know who you are. You have no personal history. You have no gender. You're not even a human being. From your perspective, you don't know anything. So resting in that substrate is just a state of unknowing. But we don't remain there indefinitely. And so there's a stirring, one can say, of karmic energies. There's a stirring of some kind of energy that is stored there, that is implicit in the substrate. Something stirs, some energy stirs. And this, a nice word from physics, the symmetry, the symmetry of that just sheer vacuity in a state of even homogeneous unknowing is broken, that symmetry is broken, and with the stirring of these karmic energies, then the substrate consciousness emerges. The image that always, whenever I say that, the image that comes to mind is like taking a sword from its sheath, from its scabbard, pulling it out, a bright shining sword, like the sword of Manjushri, and you pull it out, and you see, whoa, that's a radiant sword, like a lightsaber, you know? When it was in the sheath, you can't tell anything. You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't even know there's any light in there because it's totally covered, right? But you pull it out and boom, right? So now substrate consciousness emerged from the substrate. It emerges from the substrate. And so there is awareness, but it's indistinct, it's rather unformed. But then this evolution continues, this emergence continues and there's something that's called afflictive, afflictive mentation. Afflictive mentation. So it's, a, it's an elegant, kind of sophisticated term, abstract term. You don't know what it means unless I've defined it for you. This is my translation. But what this is, is something of a coagulation, a drawing, a condensation, a gathering together of a sense of self, of I am. It's very primitive. It's pre-articulate, pre-cogitative. It's really primitive. Just a sense of being over here, a sense of presence that doesn't talk, doesn't conceptualize, just, so there's my mudra, there's the fist, a drawing in upon itself, which then from that perspective, the space seems to be over there. So I'm here, space is over there. But it's really primitive. In the Buddhist view, insects have this. Very primitive, sentient beings have this. You don't need a frontal cortex. You don't need language skills. You don't need conceptual skills and so forth. It's raw, it's primitive, it's primal. It's just me and not me. It's that fundamental distinction, me, not me, right? And then I've got two fists, right? So there's some separation, but it's just me, ill-formed, almost an embryonic me, 
versus this vacuity, right? just the substrate. And then out of that arises mentation. And so now cognition comes in. It's a type of cognition, of, still primitive, not at a high level. And with the emergence of this mentation, then we start to see the array of appearances, diverse appearances. And with this higher level of cognition, then there's a distinction. The distinction more clearly is drawn between subject and object and this and that. So you're, it's as if now you're kind of waking up and then oh, there's vision. There's the visual field. There's the auditory. Oh, here I am. Oh, yeah, me. You know. So in my case, Alan Wallace. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then the conceptual grid comes in. It's restored. And then out of having distinguished appearances that we're not blending sound with color, with smell, and so forth, now the conceptual grid comes in and it objectifies. Oh, Rob's shirt has the color black. It has this texture. It has this size, this shape. It has, it has. And so the conceptual imputation comes out. And then we're filled with the world of objects and a world of subjects. I have this, I have that. I have this emotion, I have this thought, this memory, this idea, and they all have attributes, and I have these over here, and you have those. And so now we're in this familiar world populated by many objects that are literally conceived by the conceptual mind, filled with subjective processes that are also conceived by the conceptual mind, and now we enter into the world with which we're very familiar. Oh yes, here I am, Phuket. Right? So there is background to this statement, previously your intellect demarcated outer from inner, so there it is in mentation, even in a very raw, afflictive mentation, very raw, primitive, basic. Mentation, it gets more sophisticated, then the conceptual mind comes in, and we really not only distinguish between outer and inner, but we reify outer and inner. And reify, it means we grasp onto as inherently real. I'm really in here, you're really out there, I'm the subject, those are the objects, this is in, this is out. And the reification comes in. Grasping onto it is truly existent, inherently existent, real, independent of any kind of conceptual designation. We feel, no, no that, was, that, that object was already out there. I just witnessed it. I was just passive. I just gave a name to it, but it was already there, already had its own defining characteristics. It was already an object, and I, I simply witnessed it. And so we don't see the participatory nature of the way we apprehend objects, because they seem to be already out there. Okay? That's metaphysical realism, that the world is already populated with a whole bunch of things just waiting to be discovered and labeled, but they've already defined themselves. They've already dr uh, drawn their own boundaries, and they were really there, right? as I'm really here over here. So that's what he's saying here. Previously, your intellect demarcated outer from in, it demarcated outer from inner and grasped onto them as being distinct but now when you've come to this phase through the shamatha we've been there done that through the investigation of dependent origination viewing all phenomena as being illusory or illusion like dream like coming to see that phenomena in fact don't have that independent inherent nature now ascertaining that there is no outer and inner, you come upon the, the nature of great all-pervasive openness, which is called meditation free of the intellect and devoid of activity. 
So you settle in a non-conceptual state, but it's not just going blank-minded. It's a non-conceptual state that is ascertaining the emptiness of inherent nature, of subject and object, and all manner of objects and all manner of subjects. In such a meditation, in such a meditative state, motionlessly rest your body without modifying it, like a corpse in a charnel ground. Let your voice rest unmodified, dispensing with all speech and recitations, as if your voice were a lute with its strings cut. Let your mind rest without modification, naturally releasing it into the state of primordial being without altering it in any way. For the three, dispensing with activities of of the body, speech, and mind, you settle in meditative equipoise that is devoid of activity. For that reason, this is called meditative equipoise. This is stillness, very deep stillness. It's not the stillness of deep sleep. It's not the stillness of spacing out or simply going blank-minded as is on the, on the path to vegetative state. It's a stillness that is brimming over with insight, but it's not talking. It's not conceptualizing. It's simply being present. So another quote from the Vajra Essence, much briefer. Leaving your body, speech, and mind in a state of inactivity literally and absolutely doing nothing at all, just being, is the unsurpassed supreme technique for inserting the vital energy and mind into the central channel. So for those of you with a bit of background in Vajrayana, you know that the stage of generation is a preparation for stage of completion. Stage of completion is really about through exercises, breathing techniques, visualization techniques, mantra techniques, I must have to say very high-tech contemplative practice, very sophisticated, very subtle, really profound, that through these various techniques, then you really are directing the prana into the central channel there at at the navel chakra and then drawing it up through the central channel into the heart, and then from the heart into this what's called the indestructible bindu, or sphere, or essence. essence. So if you ever have a chance to look at the movie uh, the, the Yogis of Tibet, the same movie that showed Dupan Rinpoche, uh, you'll, find, you'll, you'll see something quite impressive, uh, and that is a rather young, I think maybe about 30 or so at the time, a, a rather young monk, yogi, yogi monk, who is demonstrating these yogic exercises for developing tumo. And among other things, you just jump straight up into the air. In the air, you're going to full lotus, and then you land in full lotus, all the while holding your breath and maintaining a visualization. Um, That's not meant for elderly people, (laughs) unless you really want to spend most of your time in the chiropractor's office undoing the damage you did uh, so this is a good thing to start when you're about 16 or so, if you're really keen on that. It's physically very, very demanding. It's very powerful stuff. Um, and it's through that kind of practice that you really generate, through very vigorous activity, you ignite the, the flame, the, the heat, the, the, the heat in your navel chakra, 
And then you get these yogis. And this, is, this has been documented by Herbert Benson at Harvard University. He saw all of this. He videotaped it. I saw him present a video and give a talk on it. Uh, where they literally, these yogis, are going into this dumo practice uh, for generating... Now, what it's really about is to realize the innate mind of clear light, pristine awareness. That's what it's really for. Uh, but the technique is very energetic. It's, it's very advanced yoga, where you're bringing the energies in through these exercises, breathing exercises, visualization, and so forth. And so he, he videotaped monks at one really hardcore meditation center where they would all, I don't know, maybe 20 of them or so, they'd go into this dumo meditation. They would generate, they would ignite this inner heat. And they would be in a room about 8 degrees Celsius, maybe 7 degrees Celsius, so not freezing, but definitely very much on the chilly side. They'd be in this room, and they'd strip down to just a little loincloth. And then they would, they would have a sheet. They'd have an assistant. They'd have the, the assistant dip a sheet in ice-cold water. They'd wrap this around themselves. And then they'd see how many sheets they could dry off within like an hour. So it was kind of like, you know, green berets of meditation, and the special forces of meditation. A bit competitive, but uh, I think they also kind of just did it for fun. But you would actually see, he showed it, and you would see steam billowing off their shoulders as they're generating so much heat, they're literally drying off these sheets. So there are many ways to dry sheets. <laughs> this is one of the more esoteric. <laughs> um, so that's, there's, the, there's that way, and then there's a way which entails a lot of doing. And then there's the way of not doing anything at all. And the same thing happening. Where you just rest your body, rest your speech, rest your mind. And then these energies just naturally migrate into the central channel, up through the central channel. And the same thing happens. But with a radical, radical state of not doing. Now, if you try this before you've developed shamatha, before you have any realization of emptiness, and before you have any real realization of rikpa, and you just say, well, there's the hard way or the easy way, I'll just take the easy way. Uh, and you're not doing either one. You're practicing bunny meditation. So I, I was with this holiness at, at, at a lunch in... Uh, Oh, was it? It wasn't, it wasn't in Sydney. It was that other place farther to the south where there was a conference a few years ago. Not well, no. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, to the north. I was looking south from the top side. Brisbane. Yeah, exactly, Brisbane. And we're sitting in the north from the opposite side. Or south from the opposite side. Uh, but His Holiness just made a brief reference to this. We, I think we just, lunch was just over, and he turned to me. Because I, I was asking about some references from Dzogchen that he had referred to me earlier. And he says, eh, some people think they can do Dzogchen just by sitting there. And he just bursts into laughter. Oh, lasso. So this is simple. And it's quite remarkable that this does happen of its own accord when you're a suitable vessel. His Holiness Dalai Lama, in his first book on Dzogchen, based on teachings he gave in California a long time ago, he writes... When you rest the mind, putting it out of work, the vital energies naturally become refined, and solely by non-conceptual meditation, you slip into the clear light with the mind and vital energies. 
This requires settling in complete inactivity, which is not easy. So, but this is resting in the nature of the substrate. Now, what is this substrate in this context? One can say that the, this is the ultimate substrate, which is the primordial union of dharmata, dharmata, synonymous with emptiness, synonymous with dhammadhatu, the ultimate nature of phenomena, ultimate nature of appearances. That's what phenomena are, phenomena are appearances. The ultimate nature of appearances, dhammata, ultimate reality. But the primordial union, the primordial non-duality of dhammata with chittata, chitta is mind, chittata is the ultimate reality of the mind, which is none other than primordial consciousness. So that primordial union, that is, they've never been apart, they were never put together, they've always been of one taste, of one nature, is the ultimate space of phenomena and the ultimate nature of awareness, ultimate nature of mind, which is primordial consciousness. Resting in that ultimate non-duality. That's resting in the substrate. Okay? So, we get one more citation from the Vajra Essence when he's talking about bona fide Dzogchen meditation. When you're really practicing tekchut, breakthrough phase of Dzogchen meditation, he describes it as follows. As for meditation... Throughout beginningless lifetimes in samsara, the original primordial ground, samantabhadra, who is the personification or embodiment of primordial consciousness, the original primordial ground, samantabhadra, has pervaded the mind streams of all sentient beings, just as sesame oil pervades sesame seeds. However, under the influence of dualistic grasping, now we know what that is, the grasping of subject over here, object over there, reifying both, under the influence of dualistic grasping and clinging to true existence. So the first of all is seeing them distinct, and the second one is locking onto them as being truly existent, inherent existent. Under the influence of dualistic grasping and clinging to true existence, the mind becomes dimmed as if by darkness and deluded. But now, now that you've had Rick pointed out to you, but now, apart from identifying your own nature, there is nothing whatsoever on which to meditate, and you thereby gain freedom for yourself. As a result of holding your own ground, but now not just holding your own ground on the shamatha level, holding your own ground on the ultimate level, resting in rikpa itself. As a result of holding your own ground, freedom is experienced in the domain of pristine space unstructured and unmodified by the intellect, and you are infinitely immersed in great, self-emergent, primordial rest. This is like space merging with space. So, it pertains to my response to Beata this morning, that there is finally a perfection of relaxation, and that's it. Come to the culmination of shamatha, that's pretty good. But it just gets better to primordial rest. Okay. Now, final point for this aphorism. Um, in the popularization of Dzogchen, which comes, sometimes can be very helpful. I've done it myself. I'll lead, I have led one-week retreats on Dzogchen. I think there's nothing wrong with that, as long as one doesn't mislead people. 
Um, but in the, and so I'm one of the popularizers. I'm not pointing at other people, they're the bad guys and I'm the good guy. Nope. It's fine to popularize it, I think, as long as it is presented accurately within context and doesn't mislead people to think they are where they are not. But in the popularization, the word open presence comes up a lot. Open presence. This is what Dzogchen, Dzogchen entails, open presence. And that's a, it's a nice translation. Uh, I'm using it. Um, it's choksha in Tibetan. And choksha means letting be, or just resting, or just... So there's the mudra, of it. just let it be. Just... So with your awareness, just being open and present. Openly present. Choksha, just, just resting. But of course, without dullness, without stupidity, without darkness. Just, just resting. And so... When it's taught out of context, then people are taught from the beginning, well, never mind shamatha, not that important. It's hinayana, it's sutrayana, it's mundane, it's ordinary. And vipassana, oh, don't worry about it. Just how, let's just go to straight open. Why don't we just go directly to Dzogchen and practice now open presence. And it just rests there, just be open, don't grasp onto anything, no duality, just rest, be present. And isn't that really nice? You've come, you're now practicing the pinnacle of all of Buddha Dharma. Wow. Beyond stage of generation, beyond stage of completion, beyond relative bodhicitta, beyond the six perfections, beyond ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. Poor, why, why didn't they tell me that before? You know? And so that's where people mislead. I don't know why. I think they must know better, but maybe some don't. But now I'm citing here, finally, and I'm sorry it took so long, but citing one of the great women yogis of Tibet. Her name is Serakando. She's not famous like Yeshe Tsogyal or Majit Lampkidrama or others. She lived in the late 19th, early 20th century. Serakando. And a, a happily, a really good biography is soon to be published. I've read it because it was a doctoral dissertation, and now it's being prepared for a book. It will be published soon. It's a good translation. She had an extraordinary life. Uh, she was a natural tertun. She was a treasure revealer. Um, simply an extraordinary natural yogini. Uh, she was also the consort of the fifth son of Dujum Lingba. So she's right in that Dujum Lingba lineage. And her, her husband, I don't know why they give me a problem right here. My earrings are falling off. My earring. Um, do you see why it's ca yes. catch catching? What is it? It's oh, it's snagged and everything. Okay, thank you. Oh, I can move my head. How nice. Hola. So we need, the, we need the dakinis to help us on this issue. So she was the consort of the fifth son, Timeusev, of Dujun Lingba. He was, of course, he was a Dertun himself. So it was one of those marriages made in heaven. Um, so they were quite, a, quite a, a duo. She wrote, she was just one of those naturally gifted individuals, incredibly gifted. And she wound up writing the most definitive commentary to one of the five classic Dzogchen dermas of Dujun Lingma, namely Buddhahood Without Meditation, which has been translated, very nicely translated, by Richard Barron. It's been in, in print for quite some years. Um, but she wrote the definitive commentary. It's quite, quite spectacular. And so I've translated her commentary, and the commentary includes the root text, so I really had to, without plagiarizing Richard Barron's Translation, I had to translate it myself. So I've retranslated the root text, translated it to a commentary. This too will be published by Wisdom, hopefully in the not too distant future, by Wisdom Publications. But she gives a very succinct 
explanation, now speaking with tremendous authority. She's an accomplished yogini, Dzogchen master, direct lineage holder from Dujulnima himself, by way of his son. Um, so we can really say this is quite definitive. And she's tremendously respected. Zongsai uh, Kensu Rinpoche holds her lineage. Jajal uh, Rinpoche, the 100-year-old Dzogchen master, he was a direct disciple of hers. And really, I think her primary, her main disciple, the lineage holder, she passed away decades ago and took birth as his daughter. And she's probably about my age. I don't think not much older. Maybe not, maybe not even my age, but she's not young. She's not really old. Um, so his daughter is said to be the incarnation of Sarakandu. And herself, again, a very accomplished practitioner. So she describes then four kinds of open presence. Choksha. Choksha Nabaji. Four types of open presence. And all of this, I think, is just a perfect commentary to Atisha's statement. The essential nature of the path now, that you're focusing on ultimate bodhicitta, is just resting in the nature of the substrate. That primordial union of emptiness and primordial consciousness. Dhammata, chittata. Okay? But now, here's her take. Because this is open presence. You're not withdrawing into samadhi. That was in shamatha land. Right? Now there's no withdrawing at all. There's no need to withdraw. You already, if you've done this step by step, you already have superb stability and clarity. You've already realized emptiness, and now you're just resting in rikpa. So what's this like? So let's look at these four. And she divides these into, I'll just give them one by one. The first of these is the view of open presence. That's the first. And these are sequential. Regarding the view of open presence, the great uniform pervasiveness of the view transcends intellectual grasping to signs, does not succumb to bias or extremes, and realizes unconditioned reality, which is like space. Unconditioned reality, of course, is dhammata, dhammadatu, emptiness. It can't be interpreted in any other way, which is like space. It's like the substrate, but ultimate level. Breaking through the substrate to dhammadatu. And you're viewing this, of course, from the perspective of rikpa. So it's just resting in that. That's the view of open presence. If you've not realized emptiness, you're not resting in that open presence. You're just resting in ordinary mind that's gone into neutral. Where that'll take you, I don't really have a clue. It's not shamate, vipassana, or dzogchen. And it's not really anything else either. So there's the view of open presence. And then we have the meditation of open presence. As I mentioned before, Jujun Limba said, Dzogchen meditation is nothing other than sustaining the view, the Dzogchen view. And that Dzogchen view is nothing other than viewing reality from the perspective of Rikpa. Right? So now regarding the meditation of open presence, just as the water of the great ocean is unfathomable, whatever arises is none other than the nature of ultimate reality. Just as water is permeated by limpid luminosity, like a clear pool of water, in ultimate reality, there is no samsara or nirvana, no joy or sorrow and so forth, for one realizes that everything dissolves into uniform pervasiveness as displays of clear light. Clear light here is referring simply to the clear light of rikpa, a pristine awareness. 
So the meditation, the meditation of open presence is viewing reality, of course, from the perspective of Rikpa, but seeing viewing phenomena not only as being empty of inherent nature, that is, nothing existing from its own side by its own inherent nature. Not only that, but you're actually seeing, perceiving, apprehending, viewing all these appearances as being nothing other than displays, creations, effulgences of the clear light of your own awareness. They are simply formations of the luminosity of your own pristine awareness. Now, again, let's just drop back to the greatest of all analogies of this. And that is, if you're in a lucid, a radiantly, thoroughly lucid dream, there's just no aspect of the dream reality you have not fathomed. You totally get it. And you're just there in the dream, thoroughly awake. Then two things will be taking place there, as you're simply viewing the dream from the perspective of waking consciousness. Right? And one of these is whatever appearances arise to you within the dream, all the dreamscape people, events, anything, as you view them, you view them, you simply know them, you perceive them as being empty of inherent nature. You know that, you, because it's a dream. They couldn't possibly be really there from their own side, otherwise it wouldn't be a dream. Right? So on the one hand, you're, you're viewing everything objectively as having no existence from its own side objectively, but in terms of your persona within the dream, somebody within the dream, you recognize there's no one there either. From the subjective side, there's no one really there. It's just like a hall of mirrors. Illusions upon illusions. Subjective illusion here, objective illusion there. But empty, empty. So you see that. But not only do you perceive the emptiness of all objective phenomena, the emptiness of all subjective phenomena, the emptiness of any real duality between the two, that that's not inherently real, the duality, the bifurcation of something object. But you also see, not cogitate, figure out, intellectually in, uh, infer, but you see that everything that manifests in the dreams, all the phenomena of the dream, all the dream appearances, are nothing other than displays of your own awareness. I mean, it's really quite inconceivable that, that it could be anything else. And so there's a powerful analogy of being totally lucid in the dream state, analogous to being totally awake in the so-called waking state, which, of course, is what a Buddha is. So there it is. That's the meditation of open presence. You can see what a, what a far cry, I mean, uh, as, as arousing such laughter, a kind of a belly laughter from his holiness, how utterly astonishing that is to be that lucid, and then just resting in that open presence. But now, in contrast, imagine a person, yeah, this is the, I've never pushed the analogy in this way, but it's, it's perfect, perfect to do it. Imagine being in a totally non-lucid dream. Right? And in the midst of the non-lucid dream, for whatever reason, somebody comes to you and tells you, why don't you just sit there and do nothing at all? Just, just sit there, like a little bunny rabbit in a field. Just sit there. Just sit. Sit. Stand. Roll over. Wag your tail. No, no. Now just sit. Just sit. And you say, okay.
is something going to happen? You're sitting there in the soup of your own delusion, not knowing what's going on at all, not even challenging the appearances of everything existing from its own side, having no clue that this is a dream, and you're sitting there, what on earth is that? It's just called sitting there. But to think that somehow just by sitting there, you're going to realize something? Maybe. It could happen. If you're a prodigy, maybe something will happen. Or maybe the dream will just implode, because that's what will actually happen. If you just sit there and don't engage with it, it actually implodes. And then you slip into the substrate. And so you go from a non-lucid dream to a non-lucid substrate. You go from a delusional non-lucid dream to total state of unknowing in non-lucid dream of sleep. I don't see any awakening there at all, any realization, any transformation, any freedom whatsoever. Not a shmijin. That's open presence with no context. And to present that as um, Dzogchen practice, I think is very unfortunate. Because then people get caught up in that thinking, I'm, I'm, pra- I'm resting in Rikpa, I'm practicing Dzogchen. And the, the sadness about this is that they're not practicing Dzogchen, but then they're not practicing anything else either. They could be cultivating the four thoughts that turn the mind, they could be developing the four immeasurables, they could be developing shamatha, they could be developing four applications of mindfulness, they could be doing some good in the world, developing the six perfections, stage regeneration, stage of completion, all kinds of worthwhile things they could be doing. But now they think they're already at the top of the mountain practicing Dzogchen, but they're not. But that means they're not practicing anything else at all. They're just pissing away their time. That's kind of sad when Dharma teachers lead people to wasting their time completely. So that's the second one. That's meditation of open presence. The third one, regarding the pristine awareness of open presence. So we had the view, the meditation, now the pristine awareness of open presence. Where do we go from here? Just as the supreme mountain, this is Mount Meru, in the center of this world system is unmovable, Pristine awareness transcends time without wavering even for an instant from the nature of its own great luminosity. So there's the element here. Primordially unmovable. Not that it stopped moving, but that it transcends time. As soon as, and this is where Rikpa really dwells in the fourth time, which is not located squished between the past and the present, hovering in that little narrow groove of the present. But it's the immovability, the stillness of the fourth time that transcends all the three times. It's like that notion, simply as an analogy, that notion of frozen time in quantum cosmology. And it's a very well... uh, Paul Davies has written a whole book on this. He's an outstanding theoretical physicist, Paul Davies. And he's written in Scientific American about this. This is very, very mainstream science. But frozen time, that is, the universe doesn't evolve. Nothing's happening. There's no change whatsoever without, without the, the observer coming in and demarcating subject from object. As Andre Linde, you might check that out, because I've quoted him now in the notes that you have now. It really does seem to me not a trivial parallel. So there it is, fourth time. Here's an analogy I like for this. 
Because the approach here, as we're already doing in shamatha, I think what we're doing is actually authentic practice. We are prepared to do this practice. I think we can do it correctly. We can go deeper into it. And you can, you can without any pride or pomposity, say, I'm a shamatha practitioner. Because this is a good VW called a VW. It's a really good car. You know. Good old Volkswagen. One of the best cars ever made. My first car. Valve. So we're driving a VW, it's a VW, we know it's a VW, and it gets us from here to there. That's, so we're showing metropolitans. And we see in this phase of practice, with no big esoteric stuff going around about it, this is shamatha, right? In this practice, what are we doing? We keep on coming back to this theme, rest your awareness in the present moment, in the present moment. Don't drift off in rumination into the past that is already gone. Rumination about the future that has not yet come. How many times have you heard this? It's just in two weeks. Come to the present. Release grasping. Come to the stillness of the present. There it is. There it is. And when we're doing this in the shamatha mode, you know, not yet having incorporated, embodied, realized the Dzogchen view, then it can seem like, whoa, this is very slender. If I, if I wiggle, then my, my attention starts drifting off into the past. Or I wiggle and my attention starts drifting off into the future or someplace else. So it seems quite narrow. Quite slender. I mean, exactly how long is the present? How long does it last? Before you'd have to say, no, that's the past. No, that's the future. So here's a metaphor. Here's an image I like. There's something in English, uh, unless you're a native English speaker, you probably don't know the word. It's called a forklift. I'll teach you a new word, forklift. But anybody who knows farms knows the word. A forklift is just a platform, a platform with a machine under it. So it's a flat platform, horizontal got a machine under it, and it's, just, it's a forklift is for just lifting stuff up and down, up and down. So it, it often has kind of like something like two, two crossbars, and it goes whoop, and just the, the forklift just goes straight up. It's a flat platform, it just goes straight up. It's a forklift, okay? So if you, if you have some high shelf, you put it on the forklift, lift it up, and then just shove it over under the shelf, forklift comes down, so there it is. It's important you visualize it to, to be able to get this image. So there it is. So now imagine you're lying in the supine position, on a forklift. <laughs> and you're inside a barn. And right above your eyes is the roof of the barn. So your eyes going left to right. The, the roof of the barn is left to right. So you're looking right up at the roof of the barn, from the inside, obviously, the ceiling. And right there at the roof, at the, at the, right there in the middle of the roof, that crest, there's just a narrow crack. You can see the sky, just like a thin, thin blue line. And besides that, it's all dark. You're in the barn, right? But right there above your eyes, you see that kind of thin blue line of the sky. Right? You say, wow, that's a very, very narrow band. And above it, it's all black. Down, down below it, it's all black. But there is just that kind of like, that line of light from the sky. So it's right above your eyes as you lie on your back, right? And now somebody turns on the forklift. And then gradually, you start raising, you start coming up. And that thin blue line comes closer and closer and closer and closer. Until finally, it's right there in front of your eyes. 
and you can no longer see the barn. All you can see is the sky. That which looked like it was very narrow, hemmed in between the past and the future, hemmed in between two dark spaces. Suddenly, the dark spaces are gone, and all there is is a clear blue sky with no boundaries. So when through shamatha and through vipassana, through identifying rikpa, you're coming into that slender, narrow space of the present moment, when you break through, then you see that narrow space of the present moment is an infinite expanse. Okay? So it's an image. But the avenue to that fourth time is by way of the present. Just like the way to see the clear blue sky is not going up into the dark this way or the dark that way, but just coming co closer and closer and closer to that pencil-thin band of light and then looking right through it. So the band is gone, the borders between present and future and present and past, the borders are gone. And now that it's, pre it's present, but you see this present actually is much bigger, infinitely bigger than the barn. It's an image. I find it useful. There it is in the fourth time. Unmovable in the fourth time because movement is inconceivable in the fourth time. Now we move to the fourth one. This is appearances and mental processes. Appearances and mental processes. Appearances coming from outside, mental processes from within. Of open presence. Regarding appearances and mental processes of open presence, all appearing phenomena are naturally empty and self-illuminating. That's your experience as you're resting in this open presence, which is just going deeper and deeper and deeper, and you're not doing anything. I gave the analogy to some one, one person today in, in a meeting, which I've given many times, of like the dough, the dough for, let's say, a blueberry muffin, a blue, blueberry muffin, like a cookie, but this is a muffin. So you put it in a little muffin tin, and you put it in the oven, turn on the appropriate amount of heat, and then, if you watch it, something quite marvelous happens to the, the, that muffin dough. It turns into, it rises and it turns into a very delicious, airy, fluffy, and my mouth is already watering. <laughs> is it time for dinner? With lots of butter on it. Blueberry muffin, right? So how do you go from that goo, that kind of sweet, sticky goo, to a light, fluffy, airy, delicious, Blueberry mutton. How does, it how does it make that transition from something you might want to dip your finger into but not to have a whole mouthful of to something you'd be very happy to have a whole mouthful of? What does the, here's the question. What, once that, that muffin dough has been put inside the oven and the heat has been turned on, what does the muffin dough need to do to turn into a muffin? Imagine that you're a conscious muffin dough. And you're thinking, I'd really like to morph into a muffin. Everybody will love me. And I'll be delicious. But right now, I'm just heavy and sticky. And nobody really loves me. What can I do? I really want to become a muffin. <laughs> all, all the Buddhas of the three times. What can I do to become a muffin? 
because I have to do something, obviously. This isn't doing it. I'm not, I'm not a muffin. We know it doesn't need to do anything. If it, if it did something, it'd be a bit, cre- bit creepy. <laughs> Just sit there. You know, and it will happen to you. Because you're in the right place at the right time. You've settled your body into a state of total inactivity. Your speech into a state of total inactivity. Your mind into a state of total activity. So just sit there and rise. And turn into a Buddha muffin. But don't do anything at all. So she's speaking of the muffin rising here. While doing nothing at all. But it's not staying stagnant. And that it's it's the muffin of the view of open presence of the meditation of open presence, the pristine awareness of open presence, the appearances and mental processes of open presence. It's just going, whoa, it's rising, it's rising, it's rising. Insights are coming, coming, coming. And you're not doing anything at all. You're being done. You're being done. It's happening to you. And don't mess with it. Don't try to make it go quicker. Don't try to do something to be clever. Because this utterly transcends your intellect. Rest your awareness with no modification and just let it happen. Okay? So there it is. You actually perceive all phenomena as naturally empty and self-illuminating. That is you that whole notion of awareness being over here and objects being over there, awareness illuminating, like projector illuminating images on a screen. Uh-uh. It's really like all appearances themselves are self-illuminating. No duality between the appearances and the awareness that's illuminating those appearances. They, that is all appearing phenomena, are not apprehended by the intellect, nor grasped, not grasped by the mind, and not adjusted by awareness. Rather, they dissolve into great uniform pervasiveness. They just arise of their own accord, self-illuminating, and they dissolve of their own accord into great uniform pervasiveness, which is emptiness. So they are liberated, that is, they dissolve, they fade out, they release. They are, they are liberated with no basis for acceptance or rejection, no distinction between luminosity and emptiness, and no ambivalence. So all the dualities have fallen away, even the duality of luminosity and emptiness. So in the practice we're doing this week, and very much in the practice we'll do next week, we're really moving in this direction. We're doing something where we can get traction, like trying to, to drive up a slippery hill, but you've got four-wheel drive and good gnarly tires, and even though it's slippery, it's not that easy, you actually do have traction and you're moving someplace. That's the practice that we're doing. I'm not giving practices that are just above our head. I mean, we're alluding to some very deep practice here for a larger context, to know where we're going, and yeah, to give us some trajectory, some, some destination here. But in terms of the guided meditations each day, very similar taste. We're seeing so much terminology is similar. Right? We're doing the best we can. Now, if you're a prodigy, you just go straight to Dzogchen. That means you do a, a, a bypass right around Alan Wallace and go to Chadaramache. He'll probably teach you if you're that gifted. You know? But if we're not gifted, then we take it step by step. You know? If we're just kind of more ordinary, not prodigies. So, final point, and that'll be it for this, for this evening. And it's directly from her, again, the end of the quote, that I'm, that I'm citing here. This is from her commentary to Buddhahood, Buddhahood Without Meditation. To summarize all these points, 
The great perfection of ultimate reality is the great universal basis of samsara, nirvana, and the three paths, as well as the great absolute space that encompasses samsara, nirvana, and the three paths. Three paths, or let's say, shravakayana, mahayana, vajrayana. Truly perceiving its character and nature of being is the view. Truly perceiving the character and nature of being of the great perfection is the view. Great perfection is exactly that, that primordial union of dhamma-datu and primordial consciousness. Truly perceiving its character and nature of being is the view. And when you see your own nature, and that great perfection is your own nature, when you see your own nature, you gain mastery over the great, original, primordial ground of being. You've come home. By holding your own ground within yourself, pristine awareness awakens to its own nature, and meditation, without wavering from great uniform pervasiveness, free of conceptual elaboration, is devoid of any objective referent. You're not looking at anything. So you see in Padmasambhava's explanation of shamad without a sign. That's the first thing he says. Give it your best shot, your best facsimile, the closest approximation. Even without having achieved shamatha, realized emptiness, ascertained the view, give it your best shot. And let's not give it labels that it doesn't, doesn't deserve. Let's not say that we're way up there when we're not. But we're doing something authentic. We're really practicing shamatha according to a profound, authentic lineage with no deceptiveness, no false advertising. By holding your own ground within yourself, pristine, aware, pristine awareness awakens to its own nature and meditation without wavering from the great uniform pervasiveness, free of conceptual elaborations, is devoid of any objective reference. When a water drop merges with the ocean, it is indivisible from the ocean. And the one space on the outside and inside of a broken vase cannot be differentiated, but extends into a single all-pervasive space. Likewise, in the identification within yourself of the Dharmakaya, pristine awareness that is present in the ground, there is nothing to be altered and nothing else with which to engage. So, those are the instructions on formal meditative practice, resting in meditative equipoise. And the final line for ultimate bodhicitta we'll get to tomorrow. But that describes what's to do when you're not formally sitting in meditation, in meditative equipoise, but you're going for a cup of tea, walking, eating, drinking, whatever you want to do. Then how do you maintain an ongoing flow of practice, both during formal sessions and in between? Okay? So I think, even though this quite clearly is quite advanced practice, we can, as the seeds are sown, and that's what's happening right now, seeds are being sown, there is an oral transmission here. I received this from Kumabashi. and uh, received many Dzogchen teachings primarily from Gyatso Rinpoche. So there is a current here, a flow, a transmission taking place. So seeds are being sown. You know? And I'm simply trying to pass them on without distortion. That's it. That's my job. Uh, and then as we return to the practice, those seeds are sown in the mind stream. And they will not be inert. They will not die. They may start acting on your mind stream. 
They may start percolating up. They may start exerting some subtle influence on our practice of the shamad without a sign. So one could say that the actual method that Padmasambhava is teaching, I mean, he teaches a range of methods, but he keeps on coming back to, now just be present, rest in the awareness, rest in the awareness. That same practice, if the seeds sown for the Dzogchen view start to germinate, then you may follow really the same method, and it may actually turn into Dzogchen meditation. It's all a matter of the presence or absence of the view. That's it, so simple. So there's something about teachings like this. It's so radically unlike teachings, instruction that we receive in university, for example, or really just generally school, from kindergarten, elementary, primary school, on to university, and graduate work. <coughs> the whole spectrum there. I've, I've done the whole spectrum. I've got my PhD. So you know, anybody who's done any of this kind of knows what it's like. Once you've taken a course, once you've taken a course on algebra, algebra one, introductory algebra, and you take the course, you do all the homework, you pass the exam, maybe you get a good grade. The last thing you'd ever think about is going back and studying that textbook again. Like, Why? Are you bored? You, know, you never do that. And likewise, when you're studying physics, you don't go back and study the original text, you know, the, the elementary textbooks. You keep on going. You don't go back and do it all over again. Never. And likewise, you study European history. I mean, European, okay, good, you study it now, okay, move on. You want to study a specialization. But you don't take the course all over again. Nobody does that. Unless they were sleeping through it the first time, which means they didn't get it. Well, radically unlike that. Through this week, 10 days or so, there's a little bit of introduction to the view. Drawing from these aphorisms, kind of trying to bring out the meaning, bring out as much meaning as possible in a short time from these aphorisms of Atisha. And so you've been introduced a little bit to view meditation of Dzogchen. If you thought, well, yeah, I, I heard that from Alan Wallace during that Phuket retreat. I don't need to hear that again. I've, I've already heard it. I've already learned that. Then you know that one's a big mistake. This is one where the first time you hear, something comes in. Maybe some real insight comes in. Maybe it's kind of familiarity. Maybe you're just kind of holding it in limbo. Something comes in. And then six months, a year, six years, whenever, you find the same teacher or another teacher. And you get introduced to it again. Lo and behold, the way you hear it the second time is very different than the way you heard it the first time. If the teachings are authentic. Something different, because something was happening during those six years probably a lot of subconscious. But you find, ah, I've heard this before. I heard this six years ago, but, but oh, but now I get it. The same words were used, but, oh, I'm really getting it this time. And then you get it three years later. Oh, those words I'd heard, but I, and I thought I had it, but no, now I really get it. And you hear it again. And oh, wow. Wow, I'm really getting it now. And that just keeps on going until you're a really full-fledged, authentic Dzogchen practitioner. It's one of those things where you keep on getting it again and again. And it just keeps on deeper and deeper and deeper, especially if you're not just hearing teachings, 
but as we're seeking to do here now, theory, practice, theory, practice, in and out, in and out. You know, That's the optimal way to do it. Actually, the optimal is we just all drop everything in our lives and let's just practice Dharma full time, period. That's optimal. But then we can do that even if we're not staying here. So what do we do here for those of us, including myself, who are not staying in retreat after October 28th, going back again, more active, heading off to Australia, then Santa Barbara, and so forth. Then it's okay. Now, how do we implement? So this is our wonderful challenge. Not to say, well, the retreat was over. It was really great. I hope I can go to another one. Hopefully, if you have a good experience, you'd want to do another one. Why not? But not be lingering, oh, wow, too bad it's over. Nostalgia time. I hope I can get back in. But I have to make a living. Or I have to do, I have to, I have to, I have to. And then just biding time until you can go back into retreat. Bad idea. The time coming out of retreat is a time for thorough integration to show that this is not just a dharma for a living that can be practiced in ideal circumstances. This is about as close to ideal as I've seen. Good to start here. But then to see how does it work? How does, how does this get implemented, assimilated, integrated? How does this transform? How does the elixir of the dharma alchemically transform all of your experiences when you're in what other people call the real world? How does that occur? So it's not a matter of practicing dharma and then not but rather we can consider this eight weeks as being our time in meditative equipoise. And then we have some time, eight weeks or eight years, whatever it may be, of post-meditative experience. That is, you're no longer in meditative equipoise because you're doing a lot of stuff. But that's the time to really integrate. And then once a week, once a month, whatever, if you can take off a day, a weekend, to come back in, oh. And you'll find, oh, I'll predict this because I've seen it happen so many times. Take off a weekend three months from now. Go back into your practice in as ideal circumstances you can get. Just a conducive environment. And then see whether that was like a weekend six, six months ago. Or whether even though you're out of retreat, ah, that's not the same. Not the same. So, there we go. In and out. Until finally, there's no duality. Meditative equipoise, post-meditative state. Even that boundary dissolves away. That's where we want to be. All right. That's all. Enjoy your evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning.